Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU, as always, my co-host Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Joining us, we're here at the KGNU studios with a returning author to the Book Club. In fact, it's this author's third visit. Who have we been reading for the month of June? We're reading Gregory Hill and his new book, Sister Liberty, which takes place in the south of France and also takes place in uh, Indiana. So a little different setting for him. Well, we're delighted to have Greg join us. Hello, Greg. Hello, Maeve. Hello, Arson. What a treat to be here. Well, we are just thrilled to have you back. The last time you were here, it was for two of the three books in a trilogy that had very Colorado roots. They were set in eastern Colorado. As Arson explained, this is very different geographically speaking. Yes. So take us to why you wanted to first start us off in France in the 1800s and then take us to Indiana. And we will talk about that journey because the journey itself is actually part of the story. But why geographically have you moved away from eastern Colorado? I can't really speak very much to why I chose France other than I like France, and I like talking in the French, but um, I there's a, only so many times you can try to describe the vast ocean of grass and great thunderclouds and, 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 and just laconic characters who are lonely. So I, I decided it was time to move on from that. And um, and then and also my books had just been getting smaller and smaller. The, the previous book is a guy walking through a world that's not moving and, and there's not a lot of dialogue and he's just thinking the whole time. So I thought, why don't I just pop on out on the other side and, and have this ensemble cast of characters and see what happens. The question of why 18... Uh, 85. 85. <laughs> because this is an epic tale of the Stables family band. And I figure you got to start with the great-great-great-grandparents. And then uh, there's a lot of arbitrary reasons why I chose those dates, but the main thing is I thought it'd be fun. Well, it is fun. And Southern Indiana, my mother and my grandparents are from Southern Indiana, and my grandpa uh, was a Methodist preacher there, and he traveled around a lot, but the place where he found the calling was in a town called Sullivan, Indiana, and one of his ancestors, or my mom's, my mom's grand- grandfather, uh, her one of her granddads died in a coal mine accident, in a mine called the Baker Mine, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, elements of all of that, your personal family history, mm-hmm. are playing out in this novel, Sister Liberty, mm-hmm. and it is the first volume of the Stables Family Chronicles. Yes. And so I am very excited to hear more about the Stables Family, which in fact started in France as Les Tables. Which was, which is the tables. And so due to many names being mispronounced when they end up in the US, they became the Stables family. But I'm going to throw it back to Arson to ask you, what was it about this book, Sister Liberty, that actually compelled you to uh, have Greg here on the book club? Because somebody needs to explain what's going on in this book. There's so much happening. I need a concise explanation to kick us off here. Well, I think, I think, Greg is is one of the, and I don't say this lightly, I think he's one of the great Colorado writers and not enough people know about him. So as soon as he has a new book out, I'm going to take a look at it. And this book really defied my expectations. But as soon as you start reading it, you get that great verve that that Greg has in his prose. And everything is really fun. and, And I think that you have so many crazy things all happening, but they interlace and they work. 
And I was just delighted by this book. And so I thought this would be a great book to have. I mean, even though it doesn't take place in Colorado, you know, we read plenty of books that don't take place in Colorado. And um, I just I just loved it from the beginning. You know, I gave it to my daughter to read right after I finished. Just to give people a sense of everything that is going on in this book, on the cover itself, we've got a narwhal, we've got people in the lifeboat, we've got the Statue of Liberty and a silhouette of a bear who appears to be wearing a hat, but as we will find out in the book, is not. And all of that is tied perfectly together in this book, Sister Liberty. So 1885 is the year that the Statue of Liberty is coming over from France. So they say, yes. And so I'm not giving much away here to say you have your characters emigrating from France in the same boat as the Statue of Liberty is coming over. So is that something that you wanted to do all along? Was it just like when you were kind of in the 1880s in France and look, this is what's happening and all. How did that come together? The latter. It was, um, in fact, the book was actually set in 1903 at first. Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers seemed like a you know, you have to align with some historical thing, apparently. But this one, yeah, I was writing along, and, and I, I was just doing research on how a person would get from France to the United States, and I realized that a very tall person had made that journey in 1885, and I said, well, that's a metaphorical cornucopia. It's a horn of plenty. So, yeah, and so the metaphors are just there to be gobbled up and analyzed. So I want to have you read a little section of it, and this is where they're in the ship. Yes, with the Statue of Liberty. Yes. They're not like passengers in the traditional sense. They're kind of stowed away. Yeah, they are indeed. And, and so they're they're in with the, the statue herself. Yes. So why don't you read this? This is okay. the beginning of one of the chapters, and it's uh, during a dark and stormy night on the ship. Dark and stormy night. And keep in mind that the Statue of Liberty has not been, you know, tear gassed like King Kong was and, and left intact in the hold. She's dis- She's not mantled. She's dismantled and inside boxes. So these folks have been staying inside her head box. All right, chapter 14, page 79. The ship tilted forward, and the great head clunked against the wood of the Sanvisan's crate. It's only a storm, said Honora. Euphemie said, it seems very bad. The English lesson had become impossible, what with the groaning of the Colossus's dismembered limbs as they rocked back and forth in their crates. I'm sure we're safe, said Temperance. The Isair is made of iron, bless the Lord. Annie said, I'd feel safer if we weren't sharing a room with a head. Honora said, let us exit then. The four women climbed out of the sanctuary and kept bent-kneed balance against the listing of the ship. Ani held the lantern next to her ear and peered about. The hold's 212 boxes were secured by a crisscrossed network of ropes, ropes that were practically vibrating with the strain of preventing calamity. Sister Honora said, Has anyone seen the children? There they are, said Euphemie. She pointed toward the flickering of a lantern that was approaching from the alleyway that led away from their crate. Auguste, cried Annie. Pansy? The lantern hastened toward them with a great huffing and puffing. It was held by Sister Gravity. She was breathless, and her dress was soaked and clinging to her body. Where are the children? That's Greg Hill doing a multitude of voices and accents there as he's reading from his latest novel, Sister Liberty. Those with the eagle ears will have caught two French accents. So we had Euphémie and Annie. They're two French widows who were the stowaways. 
The other characters there that you mentioned are Honora and Gravity, two sisters who are part of the Church of Solemnity. Now, they have been off proselytizing in France and hence they meet these uh, French stowaways. The other two characters alluded to there are the two children, Pansy, who's the little girl belonging to Honora, and uh, Auguste, who is Oni's little boy. And all of these, are, it's an ensemble cast, but they all are wonderful characters that shine in their own right. So I want to talk about the religious aspect of this because we have the Church of Solemnity, which plays a massive role as we actually get to America. And these Two French widows and uh, the little boy Auguste end up with these sisters who have been off as uh, evangelicals, essentially, in France. They get brought back to Indiana to the Church of Solemnity. And this is, for me, where things really take off. It's not just a church. It's a whole town. It's a whole. It's a way of life. So talk a little bit about the Church of Solemnity. It's all in the name, man. It's, so you, it is you, pretty self explanatory. Never, it's basically just keep a governor on your on your emotions, and don't get too high, don't get too low, don't uh, no singing. That's very important, but you can whistle. But it's a very cooperative and, and it seems like a very inviting society, except for they don't do anything fun, ever. And to actually have fun is a sin. Now, why did I choose that? Why you can guess, perhaps. Was that a rhetorical question? Do you want me to answer my rhetorical question? I know, I, question? Think, I think we're good. Okay, thank you. So so one of the things I liked is um, they have all these things to keep them even keeled emotionally. So when there is a community-wide gasp, when they find this all-tent revival is going to come to town, they immediately have to then go into what you call the dirge of emotional overreach. Yes, indeed. You must have had a lot of fun coming up with this. Oh, good Lord. I had, I mean... I had so much fun because I, I did a little bit of research on uh, just American, re- the de- development of religion in America in that era and how the, the Church of England got kicked out. And then basically there was this huge explosion of invented and increasingly ridiculous religions at the time. It was just the equivalent of snake oil. Many of them were. It basically just gave me permission to pull anything I wanted out of whatever orifice I wanted and I had and I did it by God and it was fun so they are allowed to enjoy the French cooking yes because before that the food was horrible right yes and then suddenly the cooking is good and they're all worried like well are we really allowed to enjoy that somehow the the head of this whole collective had decrees that Yes, yeah. you can enjoy French cooking. You just can't really express it, sort of, right? Exactly. You could, yeah. And, and and just as with everything else, we set our precepts and then we disobey them. And in this case, a quality loaf of French bread that's worth going to hell for, in my book. <laughs> That's author Greg Hill speaking about his book, Sister Liberty. It's his latest novel. It is the first volume of the Stables Family Chronicles. He's our guest today in the Radio Book Club. We're here at KGNU. I'm Maeve Conran and my co-host is always Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Now, you mentioned there about the Church of Solemnity and how this really came out of your research looking into all of these different churches. The list of churches that now attend this revival. So there's this revival, which is a huge part of the story. It's the all-tent revival. Sorry, go ahead. All-tent revival. We're going to dig into the history of what a revival is and actually some modern-day equivalencies. Mm. 
in a moment, but I have to list off some of these churches who end up at the revival. So we've got the Church of Jobian Agony, the Church of Supply and Demand, which seems perfect for, you know, as capitalism is emerging. There is the Church of Nimrodian Protectors (laughs) of the Impermeable Cotton, which are turns out to be next door neighbours to the uh, Church of Solemnity when they actually set up at this Church of Revival. Anyway, the list goes on and it must have been so funny. Did you have a, a spreadsheet of all the different kinds of churches that you could invent Not to all. show up? I would just think of a philosophical philosophical, philosophical concept and then flip it upside down and then try to make it as dumb as possible then just figure out how that could possibly be related or somebody could you know tie it into some abstract a part of the Bible, and then just uh, make it as ridiculous as possible. So I basically just followed the template for creating a church. Well, it was a lot of fun. And they all show up at this revival. Yes. So was this something that was happening at that point in time where they would have these fairs, basically, where all these different religions would show up? Or is that something you invented to some extent? That was like it. Because when I write, my, my ambition is if I come to a fork in the road, I try to just, like, blow it up. And it just go the opposite direction. So it's a thought experiment. Just like if I, if you take all these people who all believe in the same God, put them in the same place, that cannot work out very well, will it? But I can see people trying to be uh, ambitious and trying that. I just can't see it ever working. It's so interesting because we have Ufemi, who is one of the French widows, the stowaways. Mm-hmm. Is sort of the dispassionate observer of all of this. And they have been welcomed into the Church of Solemnity and they have a lot of affection. But especially when things start to emerge and all these other churches show up for the revival. I mean, she often just says this thing. These people are crazy. These people are nuts because of what's going on. And it's really funny to have that outside observer. There's another outside observer or a group of outside observers who are, the, you know, have common sense. And this is from the second Church of Solemnity, Second Solemn, oh, right. which is this other group. And it's where African-Americans, of former, the freed slaves, have set up their own church. And they're so much more sensible and so much more with it. And they're also the sort of dispassionate observers. So it's fun as a reader to have these proxies in the book to go, it's not just me. No, these people are definitely a couple of screws loose here. They're a couple of screws loose, but it. I, I was happy that I didn't turn them into just schmucks. Like, they're they're lovable and they're 100% kind. When you consider an aesthetic religion, um, you're going to imagine people who are bossy and coming down on you and just, like, taking all the fun away, but and just, like, but these guys are pleasant, and 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 it was, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a brat, at least about that part, too much. I find them all very nice, and you were saying like, what would happen as a thought experiment if you have all of these different religions thrown in together? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's very peaceful. I think the only ones causing trouble. You mentioned the Amish extremists that were getting upset <laughs> over the use of technical illumination yes. on a stage, but apart from the Amish extremists, everybody else is getting along pretty well, well at this revival. It was the uh, the doomsayers and the the um, uh, apocalyptic type people, the rapturers. They they get their own neighborhood just to keep them away from everybody else because they do get a little bit loud. That's on Revelation Street. Yes, exactly. One of the things I loved about the the Old Time Revival is you give you have a chapter where you talk about it from the kids' point of view, and they're all running around playing this elaborate game, kind of at waste level to the adults, and they're not seen. It's like two different worlds, and it really reminded me to some extent of what it was like to be at a kid. If you're at a big wedding or something, right. and you all have your own world going on, and the adults are just you know, making toast and 
right listening to the band and you're running around like you know crazy and i i really like that aspect of kind of the from the feet up you know view of this whole thing and to the kids it's just another opportunity to to not be solemn right and yeah and like one of the happiest days of my life was uh it was it was at the the wake for my first cousin. I was like six years old, and this poor kid, had, this wonderful kid, had died at age seventeen. But uh, and so there's all these grown ups just really, really sad, and I just was having a blast drinking Coca Colas and getting diarrhea. It was so cool. I'm very and and I still feel badly about Craig. But those big gatherings, like you said, a lot of times they're at funerals or wakes. Mm-hmm. They could be weddings. The kids are having their own experience with this. I talked earlier about how Ufami and then the folks from Second Solemn are the sort of sensible ones. They have a a bigger view of all of this and they kind of think it's all a little bit crazy. But the kids themselves have a real understanding of what's happening. Sorry, the Solemnites are earnest. The Second Solemnites are cynical and and just like more, they just experience more in life than the Solemnites have. And the kids, yeah, they're they're just the wide-eyed innocents. There's just so much going on with just different levels of knowledge and understanding and everybody. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. America. But it's all, it's all makes sense. I would like to assure the listeners it <laughs> all makes sense and it's all tied together so beautifully. As all of your books tend to do, Greg, you kind of find yourself in the midst of it as a reader going, what the heck is going on? And by the time you close the book at the end, it's like that made perfect sense. How did it all work out so well? You know, last time I was here, I think uh, I talked about how my plots are like dropping a screw on a hard floor and then the way it bounces, it just does what it does. But in in the end, it's going to come to a stop. I think that this book is more like releasing a bunch of items, like just a box of junk at the top of a mountain and then watching it all tumble down. And they all take different routes, but they're all going to end up at the bottom of the mountain. It's all gravity-based. I'm going to ask you a question that yes. most writers tend not to like. Um, how do you dream up these plots? Oh, and, God. And... <laughs> not that one. <laughs> and do you – are you mapping them out ahead of time? Or is it like, I'm going to start writing some characters and we'll see where this goes. And then I'm going to try to bring it together at some point. You know, speaking of just like feeling like a god – as the god who creates this book, and I don't really mean that, as the deity, as the person, the creator of this book, it's not a world of predeterminism as I'm writing. I wind them up. It's more of a Newtonian uh, version, so I just figure out who the characters are and then let them go. It's more like, did you ever play... There was this board game as a kid, and it was a football game. It was a piece of metal, mm-hmm. and you have these little like uh, toy soldier guys, but they're football players. And they vibrate, right? And, you and turn it, it on, and, turn it yes. and the and then the, and the players just sort of randomly bump into each other. And then one of them eventually will end up in the in the end zone area, and that's how the, it goes. I'm the vibrator. <laughs> so do you do you at some point think like I got to make sure somebody gets to the end zone? Well, I know they will, so it's not really up to me. These because like at some point I'm going to get sick of writing, and and also like as two thirds of the way through the book, uh, the writing of the first draft, I'm getting a rough idea of of how this is all going to you know blow up in the end. But here's another a bigger thing I want to say is that it's not ideas. You see, ideas are worthless. I think it was some philosopher, probably or a physicist, who said, to a thinking person, ideas are worthless. Really, all I, I mean, I could write a book about anything. I just have to be motivated to do so. So once that happens, then the autism part kicks in and it becomes my special interest and I have to finish it. 
Um, so, in fact, that might be my gravity. It's just my obsessive need to complete things. Well, you do create whole worlds in here. And so you have the Church of Solemnity, but that's a whole congregation and it's a whole community where they live. But now you've also created this revival and it's the physical space is called the Village of Godly Illumination. Right. And you have diagrams. So you've sketched things out that they appear in the back of the book. So when you are building these worlds or building these communities, do you have to spatially have an awareness of where everything is? Because there are geographical references. We know the physical boundaries of these places, how they relate to each other. There are very specific places within all of these spaces, too. So when you're building these worlds, essentially, how does that start for you and end for you as a writer? Well, it starts because I don't know if you've noticed, I don't really uh, describe my character's physical appearances very much. Except Ufemi, who's very tall because everybody yeah. compliments her on it or at least mentions it. Yeah, so sometimes I'll give somebody a thing <laughs> just to just, and it, it's got to be something that then leads has, has led to a lifetime of mild trauma at least. So it's, it's, start, it's all just concepts at first and and and, and like the, and then even to this day the characters don't even have bodies in my mind. they're just these ideas of people and then and then for the convenience of the reader, then I try to map it. Then, I'll, then I will sit down with paper and pen and, and map it out. That and that's the same with all the the, the dates and times. When I got to make sure my moon phases are the correct for the calendar of the time and so forth. But so I get all those little details, and then I then at that point I've already I overdo it. I'm always talking about they went three miles north, and, and so I get way too into it. And then I have to back that off, and then I have no idea what's gonna how it's gonna go across. So you have some animals that play a key role in this book. Oh yeah, you got a bear. Yes. You got a giant narwhal. That's a cameo, but yeah. Well, you got a sheep that's kind of uh, the wool is everywhere. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that the only animal I kill? Well, there are a couple of lambs. Yeah, that's who oh, you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A couple of animals, the bear. Yeah. Uh, a couple bears, I guess. A couple bears and uh, and the narwhal. They kind of give the book a mythic quality. Yeah. And I, I, I also felt that about some of the books in... Um, your Eastern Colorado series, you know, that there's a certain mythic quality. We're not, we're not in a real, is, you, you can be in realist fiction and stretch it as much as you want, but at a certain point you kind of cross a world into, we're, we're in, you know, a, a mythic landscape or we're in a, a place that this isn't quite real. Right. Are you, are you aware when you jump that line or is you just, it's just all flowing together for you and it's all real in your head or, you know. Yes, I do that and I enjoy that. And I don't know if it's because I liked Tom Robbins as a kid because he's always making up facts that you have to want to look up but then you never do because whatever. Um, but, uh, so I enjoy that. But there's a point in this book at the end where we need to reckon with, is this stuff really happening or isn't it? And... Um, your question, your observation about the um, the the adults and the kids living in separate planes of existence, I think that the moment when it comes to a head, like, is this fantastical creature who has shown up at the end of the book, is that a real thing or is it just what's going on? I think my way of explaining it is that the adults see it one way, the kids see it another way, and you as a reader can just, I'm not really thinking about your feelings at this point. So we'll figure it out. <laughs> but at that point where, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. there are two, is it the mythical world? Is it the real world colliding yes. at the end of the book? That's also happening at the very end of the revival. 
And I want to bring it back to that because I was absolutely fascinated just about the concept of revivals. It's a uniquely American thing. And I always thought it was something that was in the history books, right? This was something that happened 100 years ago, decades ago. But then in February, there was a massive revival that took place at a Christian university in Kentucky. And it went over several days. And this was actually because social media, people were tweeting and doing TikToks from the revival. And so people were flying in to go to this revival. And then there was a lot of online critique or critique that I read about it saying, this is how certain religions tap in to the type of psychosis that can happen when you haven't slept in three or four days and you've been in this collective experience of praying and singing, this is what happens. And that then reminded me when we got to the end of your book, because at the end of that revival, we have this thing that it's, is this real? Is it not? Dear reader, decide yourself. And the two things seemed to kind of make sense in my mind. So I didn't know if you'd heard about modern revivals. I had not heard about that one, I figured revivals were if the the ones that still happened were you know with snake handlers down in Mississippi and we didn't, but they're actually happening. In they the, are happening, wow. and then I delved further into the revival news hole to find out that last July, last year in Colorado Springs there was a four day revival. It was religious and then there was a very pro-Trump. It got very political as well. And then if you look at some of his rallies, some of Trump's rallies, people say there's this sort of tendency to get into that hysteria mode that brains can go to when you're in this sort of revival sense. Yes. Yeah, the book is in many ways a critique of that whatever whatever that that quality of humans that happens when we get together and like we just start sharing mental space. But... At the end of the book, well, first of all, there's this inconsistency because I'm criticizing that or just commenting on it. And then I've also got like a giant narwhal and um, other weird things that can't happen going on. And so these all these things bump into each other and then it just breaks the system because you can't have everybody believe in... Well, it's just like, are you going to ask me about Gomar's um, uh, giant lard sun thing? That's way too hard to explain. But if ever, there's one of the main things, one of the things that comes up in the book is um, this question of if we all pray to the same God, then why are we all in different denominations? You mentioned Gunther there, and he's one of the young people too. He's, in my mind, maybe a teenager, but he's one of the wheelers, and the wheelers operate this pleasure wheel, which sounds like a kind of a hand cranked. Horse. Horse cranked. Ferris wheel. Ferris wheel, essentially. Thank you. And uh, But yes, he has this observation and he has this, you have a whole chapter dedicated where he's explaining to the other two young people, Pansy and Augusta, what his idea of religion is. And yeah, he says it's essentially it's... Everybody sees a piece of God, but they all have a different vantage point. And so they think they're seeing, what they're seeing is the truth, but they're only seeing a small piece of the truth. And it's different than the, what the other person's seeing. It doesn't mean anything these people aren't seeing is necessarily the truth or their religion, but it's it can all be the same God. It's just kind of like God's so vast that everybody's going to have a different view upon it. It remains, it's like it, it, it troubles us as we go to sleep at night. Um, in my situation, I live in an area where people believe in things that are really weird to me. Anyway, COVID really ruined any relationships I have out there because the, the, the beliefs then stop being abstract and then they start becoming practiced and they have very just the consequences of those are weird. But then if I look at it from their perspective, um, the perspective of someone who 
thinks differently from me, then there's a perfectly rational explanation for it in their heads. And there's don't get me started on this. I've well, there started. are little yeah. nuggets of wisdom that different characters say. And it's usually the French characters as these sort of outside observers mm-hmm. that just resonate with what's going on right now. And I think it's Auguste's father, Artur, says, when the fiction breaks down, so does the society. And that to me yeah. is like, yes, we should have that in a bumper sticker and, and have that on our cars because... I think that that's a lot of what's going on, that we people feel that I have this story that I tell myself about the way the universe is. And if you challenge that, then my whole I can't cope with what that means for my reality. Exactly. I think that's a perfect way to maybe wrap up this portion of the interview. And we're going to say goodbye to the radio listeners. And we're going to have Greg Hill stay with us as we're going to have a podcast only discussion, which will go into all other types of areas. But the book we have been reading for the month of June on the Radio Book Club is Sister Liberty by author Greg Hill. I hope there has been some semblance of a thread of how this book and these characters tie together because they really do in the most satisfying way when we get to the end of it. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Maeve. Thank you, Arson. Well, as we always do at the end of each radio episode, we announce what we're reading for the next month. So what are we reading for the month of July, Arson? We're going to read Rocky Mountain High by Finn Murphy. And Finn, uh, we, he was on here for the long haul, which is about his experience as a truck driver. Well, he ditched the truck and he decided to go into hemp farming with 36 acres and basically everything goes wrong, but he still wants to make some money, so he tries to become a middleman. So he will tell us about his adventures in the business of hemp. Well, we look forward to that. Another great local author. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast of the Radio Book Club. Never miss an episode. Get some of that bonus material like our extra conversation with Gregory Hill. And don't forget, you can catch the Radio Book Club on KGNU on the fourth Thursday of every month at 9 a.m., for KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arson. Thanks, Maeve.